Good morning, Evergreen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're starting in verse 13, and we're reading a much shorter text this morning. We're just reading verses 13 to 17. And the reason for that is because we're at the point in the Gospel of Mark where we're three days before Jesus's crucifixion. He's been rejected by the religious leadership in Jerusalem. They've decided to murder him. And at this point, it's not if they're going to kill them, but how. And they need to do it quickly. And we're going through a series of different questions that they are posing to Jesus, trying to trick him, trying to set a trap for him to maybe even self-incriminate himself and lose credibility in the eyes of the people. He tried to do that, they rather, tried to do that last week when we looked at how they questioned him of, by what authority are you doing these crazy things like flipping tables? In today's question, the Pharisees are asking Jesus a trick question, a really a loaded question about politics. And fortunately, politics are so uncontroversial that we're going to have no problem, no disagreements in here. Everyone, when it comes to politics, is on the same page. And Jesus gives here an answer that absolutely makes no one happy and probably is true for you as well if we're honest with ourselves. Let's read, starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to and said to him, Teacher, we know you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is God's holy, inerrant word. You know, I was reminded this morning, sometimes I'll listen to different preachers beforehand to see how they handle different texts. And I was listening to R.C. Sproul on the role of the government, just kind of big, broad picture and overview. And he started off in a way that was kind of captivating for me. When he said something, he said, the gospel, Christianity itself, is inherently, inherently rather, political. Christianity is inherently 
political. Now, what he did not mean by that is that Christianity is all about writing Christian laws for a Christian society and having that set up. Focusing on promoting the making a kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. What he was talking about, though, was the essence of Christianity. What's the good news we preach if it's not the coming of the kingdom of God? That was the good news Jesus preached, and rather ours has shifted a little bit. It's that the kingdom of God has come. Psalm chapter 2, we see that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. They did this when they put Jesus on the cross and sought to crucify him. But God laughed in Psalm chapter 2 and said, I have established my king on the throne. And any of the kings of this earth that do not kiss his feet will be shattered to pieces. We're told as Christians to consider where our citizenship belongs. And he was talking to Romans who valued their citizenship, who if they'd had to buy it, it had to come at a high price in order to get them access to the legal courts and systems in Rome. But Paul told those Romans in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that their citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the focus of what makes Christianity inherently political. And where this strikes us and gets us, it makes a kind of a complicated situation is the other kind of paired truth which is that Christianity is not just some aspect of our lives. It's not something that we can keep in the corner away from other things and not have implications that flow throughout our entire life. Being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven orients our entire life, the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave. It affects on how we interact in relationships It affects how, if we're a plumber, being an honest plumber, being a Christian plumber. If we're in politics, yes, it looks like trying to seek to have godly laws, ones which are promoting the good of our neighbors. And yes, for Christians who are members of the kingdom of God, every aspect even means that it should affect the way that we vote. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. The point here is a bigger scheme to say that being a Christian fundamentally affects every aspect of our lives, including our pursuits in every area, including in politics. And the Pharisees knew this. And what we're going to look at today is really this unpacking Jesus's answer here that's so profound in verse 17 of render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Right there we have a principle that enables us to navigate these complicated issues because as Christians we're not only citizens of heaven. I don't know about you but I find myself being a citizen of America. How do those two things pair up? How do those two things fit together? 
That one statement in verse 17 helps us to navigate that. But before we can really unpack and unload Jesus' answer there, we have to look at this loaded question that's presented to Jesus. See, this is a loaded question with a lot of different things, different things in this package. There's an element of danger in here. There's an element of political maneuvering going on. And there's even some religious overtones that make this a really complicated and pointed issue. And if you're to point to one question that if Jesus answers this wrongly, it's going to result in his death, I would point to this one question. I think we're starting to learn, aren't we, that saying the wrong things can get you into quite a bit of trouble. Believing the wrong things can get you into trouble, even where we have freedom of speech, that we don't avoid and get out of being in the world and living in the kingdoms of this present evil age. And the Pharisees do this pretty sneakily. Look at verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Literally, that word there, to trap him, is the word that you would use for if you're catching fish or laying a trap. That would be ensnare an animal, a hunting trap. Metaphorically here, they're trying to set a trap that when Jesus steps on it, it's going to spring and catch him. Kind of like a a barefoot trap. That's totally not the right word for that. I won't get too technical, so I don't throw you guys off. But they're trying to get Jesus caught. And we're told in Matthew, in the parallel text, that some of the Pharisees here that are being sent are the disciples of the Pharisees. It's the young, zealous recruits that are being sent. Maybe they haven't had as much interaction with Jesus. And they're paired with the Pharisees' arch enemies, the Herodians. This is some dangerous maneuvering here. They've set a trap. And Jesus sees it for what it is, though. In verse 15, when he sees that he sees through their hypocrisy... And tells them, why do you put me to the test? One more word there, the test. There's four times that this word occurs in this gospel, the gospel of Mark. And here's the last occurrence of it. The last three occurrences that we read were different tests that the Pharisees had posted to Jesus. And if you want to know what kind of testing they're doing, we can just look at the first instance of this word in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, when we're told that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. The Pharisees here and what Jesus sees in their lives and their bold hypocrisy in trying to set a trap to get the Messiah killed is these Pharisees are not children of Abraham. They're not believers following after God, asking some sort of sincere question. They are agents of Satan, whether they know it or not. They are the instruments of Satan that he uses to put Jesus on the cross eventually. There's a lot of danger here. 
And the danger here, and I'm going through that outline that you have, I'm referring to the back of your bulletin where there's an outline, that this un he's unloading this loaded, uh, we're unloading right now this loaded question and seeing that it's a dangerous environment, seeking to trap him. But it's dangerous because of the content of what they say. Now, Jesus' answer is going to be tempered by the fact that these are hypocrites. And notice how they kind of add the subtlety to this danger. They say all the right things. They say, teacher, we know who you are. We know you are the truth or you are truthful. That he does not care about anyone's opinions. That you are not swayed by appearances. And literally there, he says that you, for you do not look at the face of man. In other words, Jesus, they're confessing, is not impressed by people's outward appearances. He's not, he will talk the same way he does to kings as he does to peasants. He talks the same way to everyone because he understands that he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he doesn't fear people. The only person Jesus fears is he lives in the fear of his father who is in heaven. You know, we don't see people's hearts. Some of us are better at it than others, though, that when someone comes to us, we can sense those insincere motives, those subversive attacks. We can tell the difference, maybe with our children who are a lot worse at it, that when they ask a question, it's loaded with all these different elements that they're not really interested in the answer you give them, but they're interested in the result they're thinking that it's going to produce. Sometimes I think that when I'm looking at false teachers, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's a good thing. You should, because you don't see people's hearts. You can only assess people's profession of faith, their prof profession of belief, and their professed intentions. But that does not mean you need to be naive. Realize that whether they know it or not, People, when they teach false truths or when they use flattery to try to win their way with you, are being used as instruments of Satan. That we are all by nature children of wrath. That our inherent bent, the bent of humanity, is to try to seek to cause destruction. Whether we are aware of it or not, that's not the point. The point here is that the danger here we need to see is that false teachers can often say a lot of truthful things and seek to use flattery in order to seduce us. Maybe as a side note, you should probably be careful about the person who only gives you compliments but does not give you any critiques or criticisms. That person who only compliments you is probably going to be your friend only so far as it is useful to them. But this is the, the only part that's a, the danger that's associated here. We can see a little bit of these first, the, the political danger here 
in their motives and what they're trying to accomplish. You see, these two people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, never would have paired together. They're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees are closer to you and I. They're orthodox in their belief. They believe all the right things. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. They believe that the scripture is the word of God. And they're super strict about following it and have a lot of scruples and try to seek to live pure lives. And the Herodians are the exact opposite. Where do they get their name from? Herod. You know, the Herod that put John the Baptist to death, beheaded him. These are the people who are a lot more lax when it comes to following God's word, willing to compromise when it's acceptable, if it's expedient. And if we're honest with ourselves, even though maybe our beliefs are a lot more in line with the Pharisees, when it comes to how we live, more often than not, we live as Herodians, willing to compromise, willing to watch that TV show that everyone else is watching, not wanting to be so distinct and so different from our neighbors, willing to compromise on our values if we think it's going to achieve some sort of political end, willing to compromise if it means keeping our job, willing to compromise if it means having people like us. These are the Herodians, the followers of Herod. And you see, there's kind of two different political alliances here. The Herodians following Herod, if Jesus answers their question wrong, the question being whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar, if Jesus answers no, they're going to run straight to Herod. They have an inside scoop. They'll get the political leaders to chop off Jesus's head, just like they chopped off John the Baptist's head. And likewise, the Pharisees, the strict religious observers, they had some scruples of their own, and they weren't really as ready to compromise on their principles. Look what Jesus does in verse 15. He says, why do you take put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And he asks, he says, he holds up this coin. And by the way, a denarius was just a silver coin, maybe the size of a dime or a slightly larger. We have plenty of them. And this coin had a couple of graven images on it and a couple of blasphemous statements. On the front side of the coin would have been the image, the graven image of the emperor Tiberius, who was the reigning emperor at the time in which Jesus ministered. And on the front of this coin with his image in the front, there would have been an inscription along the edge of it. And I don't know Latin, so I'm going to have to read to you the Greek, uh, not the Greek, sorry, I read to you the English. I'm not that good either. That it said this on the front, and it was said it in 
abbreviations, but this is the significance. Tiberius Caesar, son of the the deified Augustus and Augustus himself. The front of this coin said that not only is the emperor king, but he's the God-man king. And on the back, it doesn't actually get too much better, if you believe it or not. And a picture of most likely a graven image of a woman who was the Roman goddess Pox, which means peace. Probably an image of Tiberius' own mother. And the inscription on that is actually a Latin phrase I know because the same thing is said of the Roman Catholic Pope, which is the Pontimus Maximus or Ponti Maximus, the highest priest. You can see why the Pharisees would have had a scruple with this. They're carrying around money in their pockets that has on one side saying that Caesar's the God-man, and on the back saying that Pox, a Roman goddess, is the high priest. And if Jesus would have said, yes, pay your taxes, that probably would have been pretty offensive to them, especially since it would have been acknowledging that there's someone over them, that they are paying tribute to a higher authority, that they are slaves of another nation. It doesn't mention zealots in this crowd. But there are groups of Jews that we've interacted with. One of Jesus' very own disciples was a zealot. And the zealots refused to pay taxes for this reason. They did not want to acknowledge any government other than the government of God over them and refused to pay taxes. And if you're wondering about taxes, how much are they paying? Are they paying 10%? Are they paying 20%? How much is this tribute? Matthew 20 verse 2 tells us that this tribute, a denarius, It's just a day's wage for a day laborer. The issue isn't so much about the cost, the amount that it's exacting from the people. The point here is more principled. Do we say that we're going to pay our taxes and compromise our principles, or are we going to say no and get ourselves into a lot of trouble? The last part of this danger, of this religious political issue that is in this loaded question here is the fact that they're presenting with a yes or no question. And Jesus answers them accordingly. And when he answers them, he says something really simple. He held up that coin and he just said, whose likeness is on it? Whose inscription in writing is on this coin? Well, it's obviously Caesar. And Jesus gives this loaded answer that I'd like to unpack together. Jesus gives us them this principle. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Jesus asked, what image, what likeness is on this? It's Caesar's image. And that was to give them a clue to who this money 
belong to. And we see here that with hypocrites, even though they might have scruples in their religious practices, people were standing by that had pockets full of money. Obviously, whatever hurt consciences they had, it didn't hurt them enough to take advantage of using Caesar's money, of making use of it to pay off different people. Render the things, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God. See, they asked the question, should we pay or should we not pay? Let's just go ahead and say the very first thing, the most obvious thing of which belongs to the government is our money. I know this is offensive. Our money. And, you know, we can actually do the same sort of exercise. Now, we I have credit cards. I don't really carry around cash too often. But if you carry around cash, you'll see that it's a Federal Reserve note. That after the Civil War, that it went away from being banks that gave you an IOU, a bank note that said how much money you have, whether it was $5, $10 or whatnot, to a more centralized system in which the federal government, the federal reserves, when they pay you money by your employer, they probably pay you in U.S. dollars. But those dollars aren't a thing. It's just paper. The value of our money comes from the fiat of our government. Your money is worth how much the government says it's worth. It has their name on it. It has their inscription. It actually kind of does have some Roman or Greek gods on it. It has a little eye peering at the top of a pyramid. It does have the things that we like, like in God we trust. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that admission. But the money that we have, there's a sense in which it does belong to them. Romans chapter 13 would be a helpful place to turn. Let's go ahead and turn there because it speaks to this issue most clearly and does not get around the answer. If you thought it was a little innocuous, maybe Jesus wasn't saying, yes, you need to pay your taxes. If Jesus doesn't say it clear enough there when he says that really straightforward yes, Romans chapter 13 Verse 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And at the end of this, we see verse 6, for because of this, you pay also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honored is owed. We'll get to the point of these persons here. But the point that Paul's making here is that by the very fact that the governing authorities have been instituted by God, 
grants them the legitimacy to tax your money. Now, I'm not saying that they deserve all your money. I'm not saying they have a right to do these things. I'm not saying an unjust king does not brutalize his people and write unjust laws. That's what we read and we knew would happen from 1 Samuel chapter 8. God was the king of the people of Israel. And God would one day set his king over the people of Israel. But in the meantime, the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, what they wanted was a king like all the other nations. You know what kind of king that is? One that taxes, in that text, a lot less than 10%, but taxes way too much. A king that requests and makes use of its sons and its daughters to enlist in its wars, to fight its battles to become its slaves, to build its building projects. Hence, you get things like in Egypt, where you have slaves from the other nations working in construction projects. Hence, you have the Roman roads, where they went through the surrounding nations and enslaved people and employed them in the building of their roads and the building of their infrastructure. This is how wicked kings act. This is how the governing authorities act in this world. And Paul says something amazing. He says that taxes are owed to them. And he doesn't just say that. If we're going to look at this thing, what the image of the coin showed that the money belonged to him, what else does the Bible say belongs to the governing authorities? Well, we just read in verse 7 that we pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed. And I have here under there a lot of different Bible verses under each of these points. That second one, that things that belong to the government is our honor or our respect. Why? Why do people that we disagree with politically or even people that we know and see do evil Why do they deserve our respect? Why do we pray for our president? It's because whether you like it or not, through providence, God put him there. Whether he took it in an undemocratic way or if he took it in a democratic way, either way, he's there. The second thing, or the third thing rather, is our obedience. You know, this is a, there's a pairing in Second Peter, or First Peter, rather, chapter 2, that says, honor the king and fear God, in which these things are paired side by side, that there's this reverence, there's this obedience that is due to them, and that we're to, re, that we're to honor, that we're to obey, for the reason, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, because God put them there. And the last thing that we owe the government is our prayer. Our prayers. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3, what Ben, very, I'm thankful, read that for us. Prayers for our kings is what we're to do. We're to pray for their salvation, yes, but also even more than that. If you want to get more uncomfortable with what the Bible teaches on this subject, 
I'll just read this for you, but you can turn there if you don't trust me. And I'm okay if you don't trust me when we're talking about this subject. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. And that one's not in your bulletin, so I'll repeat that. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. God says, It is I, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. Jeremiah, we're in the middle of a prophecy in which God says, I have authority. I've made everything that exists. I made the earth and I can give it to whoever I want to, to rule it for a time. All the nations he's speaking to, if you just backed up a little bit to verse uh, chapter or verse one, you get to see through one through four that Jeremiah is speaking to all the nations, not just to Israel. He's saying all enemy nations, Babylon is coming. And he's going to conquer you all and you best just submit because I'm putting him, God himself is putting him in authority. Does that cause you a little bit of angst? You see, the reason why we're told this in scripture is not because there's good kings in this world. If they're good kings, it's pretty easy to submit to them. It's pretty easy to trust them. If they're a good person, we can say, oh, I can entrust them with my money. I can entrust them. They deserve my respect. They deserve my obedience. And you know what? I like them. I'm going to pray for them. I pray for my friends, my family, and the other people I like. The reason why this is so essential for us to understand is because Nebuchadnezzar, just like Caesar, was a wicked and evil man. He plundered, he robbed, he raped, he took away from other people to enrich himself. The reason why God is giving him in this particular circumstance, God is giving him authority, is for God's purposes. Nebuchadnezzar wants to cause trouble for other people to enrich himself. God, however, wants to use King Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to punish Israel for its rebellion and to punish all the other nations for their wickedness. You see, the thing is, when it comes to people who are in authority, Romans 13, when we see these two texts kind of paired together, what we see is that our money, our respect, our obedience, and our prayers are owed to them, not in respect and because of their persons, but because of the position that was granted to them by the living God who gives it to whomever he will. I know that's a strong word. And I know, you know what? No one would have liked to hear that answer from Jesus. Not the Herodians. The Herodians might have been okay with it. But, oh, okay, well, we can't get him in trouble now. He's, they say to pay taxes but the Pharisees would have been pretty perturbed. And you know what? The people who are living under the thumb of Rome would have been pretty perturbed, I bet. 
The reason why Jesus taught this, though, is because he does not live in the fear of man and what he might do to him or however many people he might drive away from following him. He only fears God and his authority. Now, that's four pretty big things that we owe the government. But if we flip back to our text in Mark chapter 12, we see that there's another half to this. And this second half receives the bulk of the emphasis. The phrasing of of this principle here is the things that belong to Caesar, Caesar, give to Caesar. And the things of God to God. What is Jesus looking at that belongs to God? He's holding up a coin with the image of Caesar on it. What other image is he seeing when he looks at the crowd? He's looking at human beings who each have the imprint of God's image on them. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. You know what we learn about government? Even though it kind of upsets us over the prerogatives it gives to the government, it teaches us that government is inherently limited in its powers, limited in the things it can demand of you. It's only four things. But what God demands of us is our everything for we belong to him wholly lost track of time my timer stopped we belong to him wholly see the image of god that's impressed on us as christians we actually have more reason more things to owe to god because we haven't just been made in God's image, but we've been bought by the price of the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that you've been bought with the price of the blood of Christ, and you belong to him. So we have a double thing that we owe to God. We owe to God everything that we are, especially because we're redeemed. And we see in here this principle of limited government. And we see here kind of a hierarchy here that government makes legitimate demands on us based on God's providence and his placement, but those demands which he can make on us are limited. You know what Caesar cannot ever demand? Our worship, our implicit faith, are buying into everything they say is true as true. Caesar or the government cannot make that demand of you. We see the rub, and I'm really thankful that we have Acts chapter 5, verse 29. For they were given a law. The ruling, the ruler said, stop preaching the gospel, Peter. Stop spreading the good news. Stop forwarding this insurrection movement that says to follow the kingdom of God and be citizens of that kingdom 
in a way that's kind of subversive of the kingdoms of this world. You know what Peter said to them? What would you have me do? Would you have me obey God or man? And Peter chose to obey God rather than man. You see, in this principle of limited government, what we see is that when there is a rub, we obey God rather than man. This is something every early Christian knew right away. Justin Martyr wrote an apology to the emperor. He wanted the emperor to stop murdering Christians in the 200s and late 100s. And he was like, please stop. And he said, we worship God only, but in other matters, we gladly serve you, recognizing you as emperors and rulers of men and praying that along with your imperial power, that you may also be found to have sound mind. You see, as Christians, we belong to two kingdoms. We belong to the kingdom of this present evil age that seeks to further evil ends, and we belong to the kingdom of God. And what Justin Martyr is saying is, please stop persecuting us, because you know what? Christians are good citizens. We're told to be obedient. But Justin Martyr knows that Christians are being persecuted in part because of that inherently political nature of the truth claims of Christianity. You know, on that coin that said, uh, Caesar Augustus is the deified one, Christians, the very first thing that they were murdered for is because of their refusal to say, Caesar is Lord. Such a simple statement. It was written on their coins. They didn't have a problem using the government's money, but when the government demanded of them that they confess that there's not just one God, one Lord who demands our allegiance, but there is only Jesus as king. That political claim did get them into hot water, and they chose death over that. But notice the assumption of what Justin Martyr's saying. He's saying we worship God only. And in other matters, we serve you gladly. You see, as a general rule, Christians don't have or should not have a problem being obedient, knowing who put them in authority. And as a general rule, we don't find ourselves every single day butting up against the government and having to really see whether to, choose God, to serve God or whether to serve the king or the government. It's actually kind of rare occasions. Blessedly so. Not for North Koreans, though. North Koreans who are living under dictator Kim Jong-un, to profess to be a follower of Christ is to get the death penalty. We might live in a day in which to follow God means that we are subjecting ourselves to death. It's not without reason that Proverbs 16, verse 14 says that the king is the messenger of death. That to offend the king is to realize you can do it, but realize what you're doing. Before you make that decision, realize that it could cost you your life. And I'll tell you, the only thing that's worth your life 
and dying for is dying as a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ that he alone is your king and he alone does not just have a limited authority over us, but has an absolute authority over us. That he alone, the God, the sovereign one of the universe, is the only one who can demand our all, our everything. And his demands are not limited upon his creatures in any way. We have to be realized that we're set up with this question, whether to serve God or whether to serve man. And realize that this Quandary, the principle that's laid out here is one in which we see that we must be subject to those who are sovereign over us, but only in so far as it does not subvert the authority of God over our lives. And we need to recognize our hearts, Christians. We have rebellious hearts. We, just like the world, are corrupted by sin, and we don't like being under authority. We don't like anyone telling us what to do. What the gospel commands of us and what following Jesus commands and the the claims that he makes on our lives is submission in a lot of situations that we are quite uncomfortable with. But why do we submit? Do we lose hope when we submit to evil rulers over us? No, because we know the one who's in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases, who whatever their motivations, whatever the motivations of evil kings is, God has bigger plans. He will use even the evil deeds of wicked people to accomplish his good ends. We have this question put up in front of us. And I think really if we're going to, I I hope I'm not going too long now that I've lost my timer. Just apologize ahead of time. You know, I think that we oftentimes, especially in this political climate, we realize and we get to see in people their hypocrisy or their sincerity. What's the thing that motivates you the most? What's the thing that animates you? Is the thing you want more than anything else your political freedom? It's a good thing. I'm not saying don't want it. But what are you devoting your life to? The reality is, if we never achieve political freedom in this life, if we were to be born in North Korea and die in North Korea, under a totalitarian dictator who seeks and to makes demands of us of our all. We know that we have a freedom in Christ that cannot possibly be stripped away from us. We have a freedom in Christ, a freedom from guilt, freedom from the dominion of sin over our lives, freedom, true freedom to live and serve God, a freedom that does not belong to the world who are under the dominion of Satan. That's the freedom that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the resurrection and the power that it gives us. And what we see in Christianity is we get to see right now, I think we're having a sort of wheat versus chaff separation. What's motivating you? Is it your devotion to political freedom? Or is it your devotion 
to live as a free man in Christ, free from the constraints of sin, free under the power of the gospel, free, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for him and live for him alone. And yes, live for him, maybe even to death. And you know what? If that's the case, so be it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. We are thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ. And we know that the freedom that we have in Christ does not liberate us from the tyranny of even bad governments, because Romans 13 tells us that. That the type of freedom that we get is not the type of freedom freedom the Jews were looking for, which was freedom from out from under the oppression of Rome. The freedom which we seek to know ours, the freedom which we want to see dominate our nation. As we want to see people become free men in Christ, forgiven of all their sins, redeemed. And Lord, and in light of that, help us as free men not to fear any man. That we would give honor to whom honor is owned, respect to whom respect is, is owed, taxes, a portion of our money to whom that portion is owed. But that we would give our final allegiance, that we would give our whole lives to God, you alone. And that we would make the choice when pressed to serve God rather than man, even if it means this evil, present evil age, and the kings of this world stripping up of life itself, knowing that they cannot take away our freedom, for they can only kill the body. But you alone have granted us eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.